Hey, Cornerstone, how you doing? Right on. Hey, in 1921, just across the river from Manhattan in New York, they were gearing up for that day's greatest boxing match. It was, it was a heavyweight bout between uh, legendary uh, Jack Dempsey and uh, George Carpentier, and the winner of this prize fight was going to walk away with $1 million, which is a ton of money in 1921. It's still a lot of money today. And the, the fight was such a, a popular deal that they had literally sold over 100,000 tickets for people to show up to this boxing match. Now, in 1921, there was a company that was a little bit of an upstart that you may be familiar with by the name of RCA. RCA was the world's leading manufacturer in radios. It was a brand new technology that really hadn't really totally caught on with consumers yet, um, primarily because it had only been used for things like the news and classical music, and this new technology with the radio was really floundering. They're trying to figure out how to get this thing to catch on and for it to really go viral and go big. Um, along comes a young man by the name of David Cernoff. David's a young man in his early 20s working at RCA, and he gets this idea and he somehow gets the opportunity to go in and pitch the boardroom at RCA for his big idea. And he goes in and says, guys, we have the perfect opportunity on, in front of us to take radio to the next level. We need to broadcast this boxing match. They've sold over 100,000 tickets. People are going to want to listen to this thing. And he, he, David basically gets laughed out of the boardroom at RCA. The, the executives at RCA basically shut him down. He goes out with his tail tucked between his legs. They say things like, David, come on. You've only been around here for a couple of years. You don't understand the industry trends and industry norms. You don't understand where radio is really going as a technology. D David, no one would ever really listen to that. There's not enough radios in people's homes. This isn't going to work. And David didn't take no for an answer. He came back time and time and time again to that boardroom until finally the board acquiesced and said, fine. David, go get it done. If you can figure out how to get it done, but you get it done on your own time, don't use company time. Get it done with your own money. We're not going to give you a budget. And you're not going to get any resources. You're not going to get any personnel from RCA to go get this thing done. David goes out of the boardroom elated that he's got the opportunity to go try to figure this thing out. And um, he goes and some buddies of his, they get together and they figure out how to, how to steal a radio transmitter from the army. And, and, they, and they put it in a railway uh, road, um, yard underneath a tarp, and they hide it until the day of the fight when they need it, and he, he kind of twists a buddy of his arm to kind of go to the fight and do the play-by-play, -play. you know, play-by-play. -play. It never happened before this moment. He kind of convinced the buddy, all you got to do is just go sit by the ring and tell people what you're seeing happen moment by moment, and they call up all the different sales reps around the country, and they get radios put in, in bars and churches and schools, you know, all the places that people are going to be, and what happens next is the very first live sports broadcast of the day. And in the days and weeks to follow, the radio industry takes off. Something like over a thousand companies enter the market in the days and weeks to follow. And RCA soars and gets a, a, a stranglehold on, on the radio industry. And all of a sudden it takes off and it's in people's homes. All because of one young man who had the courage to go a completely different direction than the company and industry standards and norms of the day. And you guys get, um, because you guys work in the regular real world, you guys get that's the story of a lot of companies. In fact, I think when, when some leaders and some companies are at their absolute best is when they, they get a hold of something that they deeply believe in, and even though it may be contrary to what everybody else around them is saying, they follow that anyways. And the payoff in moments like that is huge. Now, now you guys get that's part of our story as Christians, right? Right? 
I mean, you, you get that, that our story, that you and I are at our absolute best as Christ followers when everybody around us, when the world and the culture is going one direction, and we decide to say, no, 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 no. We're not going to go that direction because God's word says this, and we're going to stand our ground, and we're going to go a different direction. When we live counterculture to the world around us, it provides you and I with a distinct opportunity and moment to shine for Jesus in such a way that we have the opportunity for an incredible amount of influence. Because we're going to start a conversation today called Counterculture. And it's going to be a little bit of a unique series, to be completely honest with you, because it's not going to be your typical week after week after week after week series that we've done here at Cornerstone. I mean, next week we're starting 3 to B. It's one of the, the biggest series we're going to do all year long, starting next week. But we're going to begin this conversation called Counterculture today. And let me let you know where this whole idea and concept came from. The teaching team was doing our teaching team retreat, and we're kind of walking through and praying through uh, the different things that we believe that the church needs this year, that Cornerstone needs this year to really unpack in the scriptures and think through and dialogue about. And we kept coming back to some real hot topics in culture, uh, things like abortion, things like uh, homosexuality, things like premarital sex and modesty and environmentalism and some real hot topics that most churches never, never talk about. But Cornerstone's not most churches. And so we decided, you know, these are some things we really got to figure out what the scriptures say about these issues, because I think there's a lot of people that are really confused about what the scriptures say. We're not confused about what we think or what we feel, but I think oftentimes we get very confused about what the scriptures teach on these things. And so we came up with this idea called counterculture. And as we looked at that list that had been storyboarded, we realized, man, if we do this week after week after week, this is going to get heavy really quick. And so what we decided is this, at different times throughout this year, we're going we're gonna to sprinkle in a different Sunday called a counterculture Sunday, where we're just going to deal with a particular issue and talk about what the scriptures teach about that issue and how we should perhaps reorient our thinking around what the scriptures say and how we should then learn how to interact with that issue in regards to the culture that you and I live in. And so today is just kind of, we're just going to try to crack the door open on that conversation and uh, kind of lay the, the, the framework for those different topics that we're going to hit throughout this year. Does that make sense? So, and, and I'll be honest, as I looked at le the list and we were talking about this, one of the things that came out of my mouth is that I don't think as a church, not necessarily Cornerstone, but church proper in North America, I don't think that we've always handled these really hotly contested topics really, really well in our society. I mean, let's just be honest. There's a lot of people who have some really weird ideas about who you and I are because some little Christian group boycotted Disney, right? And so they, they think everybody hates Disney, right? I mean, so you, you, you guys, by the way, don't do that because um, when you do that, you make it harder for me. So I'm not like that, and I don't want to be weird, and you don't want to be weird, so let's not be weird together. So here's... But you guys get, I mean, there's a lot of people who have different ideas about what Christianity is because of one little pocket did this and the news gets a hold of it and everybody thinks that's what all Christians are like, right? Or you get the other Christians that are just kind of like, they're just like everybody else. They look like everybody else. They dress like everybody else. They act like everybody else. There's no real difference in their life. And you're like, well, why would I want that? It hasn't made a difference in your life. So I don't think the church in general has done a great job handling these topics, um, Believe it or not, I think it's a little bit like dinner at my house. Um, let's see if we can get there. How many of you guys have little kids? And then you have somebody in your house who's a picky eater. Or maybe you had somebody in your house who's a picky eater. Yeah, right on. My, my middle child, Mia, is a ridiculously picky eater. And she can't stand hamburger. Okay? I don't know why it's hamburger. It just is. Um, we don't think cows are special in my house. 
We like to eat cow. We like to eat meat. They're not like, you know, you know it's not a special thing, um, which is really weird because we do eat a lot of meat in my house, to be completely honest. But Mia can't stand hamburger. In fact, my wife, she makes this soup from scratch. She's a great cook, and she puts some hamburger in it and some vegetables and some different stuff. It's great. It's one of my favorite soups my wife makes. Little Mia, she won't touch the soup. I mean, she won't even sip the broth. She won't eat the vegetables out of it. None of that stuff because she doesn't like hamburger. My wife makes great spaghetti, and she makes spaghetti sauce from scratch. I mean, she goes out and whatever the leaves you put in it is, she puts the leaves in. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not a cook. She, she does all that. She makes it from scratch, and she makes meatballs from scratch, and it's so good. My, my grandmother's fresh off the boat from Sicily, and so she has this recipe, and it's really, really good. And Mia won't touch it because it has hamburger in it. One of the glorious things about living on the West Coast is In-N-Out Burger, right? Yeah, I mean, we go to In-N-Out Burger as often as we can as a family and still stay relatively in shape. And so, so we go to In-N-Out Burger, everybody's ordering their shakes and their fries and their cheeseburgers and all this stuff like that. And Mia, two pieces of bread and a piece of cheese, please. That's just a little grilled cheese sandwich. It's boring, you know, because she doesn't like hamburger. And we trace this whole thing back. I can remember the first moment I realized Mia didn't like hamburger. We're sitting at dinner. She's two years old. I just got done grilling cheeseburgers, and Mia's going to have her first cheeseburger ever. We cut the thing in half, right, because you don't want to give a two-year-old a whole cheeseburger. That could be a problem. And so she's sitting there eating. We pray. I can remember. It's one of those crystal clear moments. I can remember exactly what was happening. I was sitting on this side of the table. My wife's over here. Uh, Kennedy's here. Mia's here. And I'm talking to my wife, and out of the corner of my eye comes this meteor of a, of a cheeseburger patty. <laughs> hurling through space towards my head and, and being surprised at what was happening, I didn't have the time to move, and it hits me square in my bald head, slides down my face with cheese and mustard and mayonnaise and all the ketchup and all that stuff like that. Mia had just started a food fight at the Alexander household. Um, that was the moment that we first realized that Mia doesn't like hamburger. Lincoln, on the other hand, the dude will eat anything. Do you guys have a trash compactor in your house? That's my youngest son. I mean, the dude will eat anything. He'll even eat what I make, okay? And it doesn't necessarily even need to be really edible. He'll eat it. And if, if you've been around my kids, some of you guys, we've had dinner together, and uh, he has this little, we strap him into this little chair, and we put the little tray on, around him and all this stuff like that. He's two years old. And um, literally, we just dump food on his tray. It, we just do. Because forks and silverware and stuff like that, it, what's the point? I've, we've tried to give him plates, but he just dumps it on his tray too. And he... Because forks and silverware take too much time for him. All he needs to do is grab both hands full of food and stuff it in his mouth as quickly as he can. You know, that, that's Lincoln's style of eating. So we have two very different eaters in my home. And now you guys get, as Christians, I think this is true, that oftentimes we fall on the line of my middle daughter when it comes to culture. We kind of reject things and say, I don't want that, I don't like that, that's not good, I don't want that to be a part of my life, and we reject culture. On the other hand, Lincoln, my youngest son, he's just consuming all of it. It's all great. If you put it in front of me, it is going in my mouth. There's Christians that approach culture that exact same way. Does that make sense? The problem is I don't think the Bible teaches that either of them are right. I think as we look at the example of Jesus Christ and as we talk and dialogue about this and we deal with these different hot issues in this series called Counterculture, I think you're going to find that both of those positions get us in a heap of trouble. And they're not accurate. Now let me say this. As we get into this conversation, let me be crystal clear. There are going to be times 
whereas you and I, as we talk about these issues of homosexuality and environmentalism, and we talk about abortion and these things that are just churches don't talk about, the scriptures identify and deal with these issues very clearly. And there are going to be moments as we talk about this where we're going to have to check our own ideas, our own experiences at the door. And we're going to have to submit our beliefs to this and allow the scriptures to be our teacher on these issues. And for many of us, we're going to have to bring our beliefs underneath the submission of what God's word says to us. And we have to begin reframing and changing some of our ideas because we may find that, oh my goodness, what I think and feel doesn't match up with what the scriptures say is true. And because as Christians, the scriptures are our sole authority in life, they take precedence. And so as we have this conversation together in this year to come and we deal with different issues, I want you to understand the authority we're looking at in these topics is God's Word. And it's our job not to change God's Word or for God to change His mind for us, but us to bring our mind and our thinking under the submission and alignment of the Scriptures. So, so two really different things. And let me say, the Scriptures do use language over and over again about how you and I are supposed to be different than the culture around us. In the Old Testament, um, Joshua, he basically says, guys, I mean, you guys may be going that way, and, and the, the culture may be going that way, you may choose to go that way, but for me and my family, we're going to follow God. That may be a real familiar verse to some of you guys. A lot of people, you know, put it in their homes for different things. In the New Testament, um, there's language that describes you and I as Christ followers as being salt and light in a dark world. Not separate from the world, not embracing everything that the world throws at us, but salt and light in a dark place is the New Testament language that would describe us. I mean, Peter and John in Acts they get arrested and literally beaten for preaching about Jesus Christ, and, and they're threatened with their lives. And they basically say, if you continue to preach Jesus, we're going to kill you. And they answer their abusers in a very telling and simple fashion. And courageous all at the same time is very interesting if you read it. They basically say, should we obey you or should we obey God? So you understand as Christians, as Christ followers, there's going to be moments where the truth is, we're going to be very different than what the world says is right. Popular culture is going to have a, a, a view on something, and as Christ's followers, because of what Christ says is true, our view is going to be very different than popular culture. You guys get that? Um, in fact, a good example of that is John chapter 15. Why don't you guys go ahead and turn there? So, fourth of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 15, uh, we're going to pick up with a couple of verses and, ta and talk a little bit about how Jesus interacted with the culture of his day. Um, in John 15, basically, uh, the disciples and Jesus have just gotten done having their whole uh, Last Supper deal uh, in the upper room, and we kind of celebrate that to this day uh, in uh, the Christian church. And they're out walking around. Judas is literally in the middle of betraying Jesus and, and literally selling him out in this moment. Jesus, knowing his time is short and is about to be murdered on the cross, uh, takes his disciples and starts speaking very plainly with them. And it's almost like the Arizona game that's kicking off here in just a little while. It's kind of like the pre-game speech, okay? Jesus is getting ready to be crucified. It's game on for the disciples, and they've got to figure out, am I in, am I out? I mean, every game has gotten us to this point. Coach Wisenhunt, I'm sure, is going to say some very motivational things to those players today and try to get them to go out and win this game because it's win or go home time for the Cardinals, right? And so that, that's kind of, it's kind of that locker room moment where Jesus has got his disciples. He's got his guys, and he's saying, guys, this is it. It's winter go home time. I'm about to be crucified, and we're going to find out what you're really made of. Um, John chapter 15, 
uh, verse 18 is we're going to pick it up. You're going to find out how uninspiring Jesus' words are here in just a moment. Um, Verse 18, he says, When the world hates you, remember, it hated me before it hated you. The world would love you if you belonged to it, but you don't. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Really inspirational, Jesus. Thanks. <laughs> Makes me want to go follow you. You know, you're getting ready to be murdered on a, on a cross, and you're telling me that if I live my life the way you lived your life, the world's going to murder me too? Don't know if I want to sign up for that. You guys get, I look at this stuff, and I, the way I look at Scripture, I always come out with different questions. And when I read those verses, some of the first questions that pop into my mind are things like, well, why, why did they hate Jesus? Why, why did they hate Jesus? I mean, did they hate him because he fed people who didn't have any food? Did they hate him because he healed people? Did they hate him because he, he, he spent time with the down and outers of society? Did they, did they hate him because he loved the world and not condemned the world? I mean, why did they hate Jesus? I mean, was Jesus such a bad guy that they wanted to murder him? I mean, did he do so much harm that he deserved to die? And then I start thinking through questions like, well, who hated him? Who, who hated him? And was, it, was it the woman at the well who had had five husbands and now she's living with another guy? No. If you read that story, you see Jesus having this interaction with her, and she doesn't hate him. She actually goes and gets the entire town and says, look at this guy. I bet you he's the Messiah. No. No, she didn't hate him. Was it, was it the woman caught in adultery where they, they drag her out and they're all getting ready to chuck a bunch of rocks at her and kill her by stoning her? And Jesus kind of steps in between her and the crowd and says, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone? Jesus saves this woman's life. Do you think she hated Jesus? No. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a corrupt businessman. I mean, corrupt businessman. Everybody hated this guy. He was in a position of power, and he was stealing from the community. Jesus goes into this guy's house, has a meal with him, becomes friends with him. You think Zacchaeus hated Jesus? The guy who was born blind, who Jesus spits on the ground and makes some mud and throws it on his eyes, and all of a sudden he can see again after he goes and washes in a particular pool? Do you think he hated Jesus because he could see now? No. Who hated Jesus? Oh, it was the religious people. It was the religious people that hated Jesus and had him murdered. It wasn't people that were broken, sinful, and far from God. I think it's really interesting as you look at Jesus' life. When he interacted with people, there was always, always, always people who were so far from God, who had lives that were absolute train wrecks, which is good news for me because there's moments where I feel like my life's a train wreck, you know? I don't know which way's up and I don't know which way to go and there's so much hope for me in that. But there's people whose lives are so much, who were who just a wreck of a life coming to Jesus and it's so interesting to me that when they came to Jesus, they didn't feel condemned, they felt loved. It's kind of like people who are on the outside of the church to a certain degree who are struggling with issues of, of homosexuality or addiction to pornography or, or you know, a whole list of stuff we're going to talk about in this, in this counterculture series. And, and yet people who are struggling with sin issues in their life, do you think they're running to the church? Dude, they're staying as far away from the church as possible, right? Because why would I want to go to church and feel more bad about myself when I already feel bad about myself? They're just going to make me feel worse, right? 
And yet I see people who are so far from God struggling with real issues in their lives, they're running to Jesus because they felt loved by him. I didn't feel condemned. And I think about my own salvation experience when I accepted Christ. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. We know our junk better than anybody does, right? I mean, I know the dark crevices of my heart that you don't and the things that are thought when no one else around, and you do too. And you know what poor stuff we're made of, even more so than your own spouse knows you. You know your heart better than anybody. And the fact that Jesus would love me in spite of my brokenness and my stuff, the fact that of what I've done, God could still love me, it's that kind of love that leads to repentance. It's that kind of love that leads to brokenness and humility and turning towards God. And you guys, look... It's not just plain, simple love. Jesus spoke the truth to these people. He spoke it to them in love. And that's where the tension really comes into for us. I mean, you look at that woman at the well. She had had five husbands and living with this guy. Do you think that she kept living with every next guy she could find after that moment? Or do you think her life changed? The woman who was caught in adultery and she was sleeping around, do you think she kept sleeping around? What was the last words Jesus said to that woman in that interaction? He looks at her and says, does anybody condemn you? She says, no. And he goes, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Do you think she just kept that habit in her life? Or do you think she changed? Zacchaeus ripped off entire communities because he's such a corrupt businessman. Became friends with Jesus. Do you think Zacchaeus changed or kept the same behavior? The scriptures say he felt so convicted because of his new friendship with Jesus and the love he experienced in a relationship with him that he went back and he paid more than what he owed back to people of what he ripped off. You, you guys get, it's not just just loving people. It's not just, you know, it's telling truth. It's telling the truth in love. And that's what Jesus was an absolute master at. It's being counterculture without being against the culture. Does that make sense? Here's the deal. I don't, think, I don't think you need to rub someone's nose in their sin. I, maybe phrasing it this way, I think rubbing someone's nose in their sin doesn't make them want to know our Jesus anymore, does it? There was some research done recently by a research uh, group called uh, Barner Research Group. Um, they went and they intentionally did a survey and a study uh, that lasted over three years and where they interviewed over 10,000 people face-to-face. And, and the goal was to understand trends in an emerging leadership generation of, of 16 to 29-year-olds, the kind of the emerging generation that's finding their place in leadership in the world as well as in the church. And they wanted to find out what these people thought about you and I. What was their perception about Christ and Christianity in a local church? And, and what they found was absolutely astonishing. Did you know that the number one perception that people who do not come to church, people who are outside the church have of you and I, the number one perception today is that we're anti-homosexual. Number one perception. Not so much that we're against the behavior of homosexuality, homosexuality, but we have a particular certain disdain for gays and lesbians. Do you know that they think that we're judgmental? Do you, they, they think that we live our life by a list of rules? They think that we live in a little Christian bubble, that we're phony, that we're hypocritical, that we have ulterior motives, that we're too political. That's what they think about us. You know, this generation of 16 to 29-year-olds views Christianity eight times less favorably than their parents did before them. 800%. Eight times more favorably than their parents 
before them. You guys get that this survey revealed that Christians are known more for what they're against than what they're for. And you know what, honestly, I can kind of explain away that data a little bit, kind of going back to the weird group who boycotts Disney that the media gets a hold of, and then they broadcast that to the world, and everybody thinks that's what all Christians are like, right? So that's why I said don't do that, because I'm not like that, and I don't want people to think that's what I'm like. So you you guys get that I can almost explain away the data that way, but the next piece of information is what floored me. Out of the 10,000 people face-to-face that they talked to about this, what they found was the vast majority of these people, vast majority had five people in their lives that they called Christians. The vast majority of these people in this survey had been in a local church for at least six months. And the vast majority of these people in this survey had strongly considered becoming a Christian. That information floored me. Absolutely floored me because this wasn't just people who were on the outside who got their ideas from the news or the media or some weird, kooky Christians who'd boycotted Disney. They, they got their ideas formed by being up close and personal with you and me. And when they went back, the interviewers went back and said, well, why do you feel that Christians are judgmental? Why do you feel that Christians are this? The overwhelming response was because I met one. You guys, I think it's okay I think it's okay to be hated for righteousness. It's okay to be hated for loving people the way Jesus loved people, okay? I don't think it's okay to be hated for being self-righteous. I don't. I, I don't think that's why Jesus was hated. And, and, when, and, and you and I, as we have this conversation throughout this year about all these different issues, the way that we have these conversations with people is just as important as what we believe about them. Because it's very reasonable, and in fact, it's very probable that we could win an argument with somebody because we have a great you know, idea of how we want to frame the conversation. It's very probable to win an argument and lose their heart. I mean, for example, me, I mean, I mean my dad and I, I can remember growing up, and I, I can remember arguing with my dad, and I can remember going to bed at nights hating my dad because he was right. And we'd have an argument, and, and he could out-argue me. He was also bigger than me, so it kind of... You know, he kind of had that advantage too. But he, you guys know what it's like to have someone win an argument and yet they don't win your heart? You ever been in an argument with your spouse and they win the argument but they didn't win your heart? To be in an argument with your parents and your parents are right and they win the argument but they don't win your heart? Because it is very possible that you and I can win arguments about homosexuality. We can win arguments about abortion. We can win arguments about all these different hot topics in society, and yet we can push people further away from the gospel in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like this. Um, I, I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I'll, I'll put it into two big buckets for us real quick. I think when it comes to culture, generally speaking, Christians... Um, fall into one of two big buckets. They, they either approach culture and say, all culture is bad, it's wrong, it's sinful, we better put ourselves out of it and, and come out of it and put it at our arm's distance because if we get too close to it, it might infect us. You know, This is the kind of the Christian, and remember, I'm speaking in generalities and extremes here, so please don't throw anything at me. Filter what I'm saying through that lens, okay? But this is, this is the kind of Christian, they, they put their kid in Christian preschool, they put their kid in Christian school, they go to Christian college, they graduate from Christian college, and they get a Christian job at a Christian company working for a Christian boss, 
And, and the mom and dad make sure that they don't have any non-Christian friends because if they have a non-Christian friend, the world might seep in and corrupt them. By, by the way, that kid will grow up and never have to share the gospel with anybody because they won't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, by the way, too, which could be called sin. But, you know, it's, it's this idea that, you know, we have Christian T-shirts. I don't know what makes a Christian T-shirt a Christian T-shirt. I'm pretty sure if you look on the back of this thing, it's made out of, like, cotton and polyester. And I have some cotton and polyester T-shirts at my home that are not Christian T-shirts, so I'm not necessarily sure what redeems this one. Um, but it is redeemed, apparently. It's, it's the idea that, you know, we can only listen to Christian music because if we listen to the Beatles, we might get involved in sex and drugs and rock and roll, and you know where that leads, right? We could all go to hell because of the Beatles, you know? Um, so, I mean, no electric guitar or drums on stage because we're all going to hell because of the drums, right? Um, so, you, you guys get, I mean, it's, it's that kind of a, a, no, the culture is bad, let's hold it at arm's length. I mean, let's not even buy Tic Tacs, let's buy Testaments. Have you seen those things? We sell them in our bookstore, you know? No, we can redeem our breath by, wearing, by eating Christian mints. I mean, I don't you guys get what I'm saying. I mean, it's almost a little tongue-in-cheek, but the truth is there is a big perception among, you know, Christianity. It says culture's bad. Let's separate ourselves from it. Let's not be anywhere near it because let's not let it infect us. The other side is you got Bucket B over here on the other side, and Bucket B is the guy who says, no, 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 no. I, I, if I can't infect... I can't affect people that I'm not close to, right? I gotta have a relationship with people. I gotta be friends with people. I gotta live with people and walk with people and work with people. I can't be too weird, you know? So I'm gonna dress just like everybody else. I'm gonna talk just like everybody else. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the same movies as everybody else. I'm gonna watch the same TV shows as everybody else. I'm gonna talk and laugh at the same jokes that everybody else laughs at. In fact, I'm gonna spend my money the same way that everybody else spends their money, you know? Because if, if I offend a little too much, then I won't have have the opportunity to share the, my Jesus with them. Well, the problem is they never really get around to sharing Jesus with them. I mean, this is the woman who, uh, forgive me ladies, who says they know Jesus, but their neckline is just as low as a woman who doesn't know Jesus, or their t-shirt is just as tight as a woman who doesn't know Jesus, or their skirt line is just as high because they fundamentally are trying to fit in, and fitting in is more important than pleasing their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys get, and we'll, and we'll unpack that conversation later down the road with this counterculture series, but you guys get, both of these are wrong. Both of these are a bad place to land. Because if you land in either one of these two places, you lose your opportunity to influence and affect culture. Because this one over here says, I don't even like you. I don't want to be near you. And if I'm here, why would I want to listen to them? They don't even like me right? Why, why would I listen to Christians like that who think that me being gay is this awful thing and they don't even like who I am? I'm not gay. I'm just using it as an illustration. Don't write me mean emails this week. Jeez. This group over here, I mean, I'm supposed to be friends with you and, and, and yet you're just like me. There's really no difference. I mean, maybe you go to church on Sundays and you sprinkle a little Jesus dust on your life when you pray when things are a little tough, but that's about it. I mean, you don't have anything to offer me that's any different than anybody else. Why would I want to listen to you? I think both places are bad place to go. I mean, Mia, my middle daughter, rejecting hamburger, saying it's awful, it's bad. And, and, and Lincoln, my other son, he's just basically saying everything's all good. Both of those are the wrong place to land. The right place to land is learning to be counterculture without being against the culture. 
Because when you reject someone's culture, they feel like you're rejecting them. And guys, our job, our job as believers is to grow up and be salt and light in the culture. And not be a jerk, not argue, but love people in truth and in love. And I think as the church in North America, we've gotten the truth thing pretty good. That's why we argue. We've forgotten how to love people really well. You guys get that the safest place on the planet should be this room. The people in the East Valley should know there's one place they can be totally loved and totally accepted, and that's a cornerstone. You guys... You guys, you get that when people walk on our campus, all of their insecurities about what they should wear or what they shouldn't wear, what they should drive or whether they should stand or sit or whether they know the songs or don't know the songs, and they're walking around saying, I don't really know anybody, do I fit here? All of that, the insecurities that rise up inside of us, all of that should melt away on our campus because we do such a good job of loving people. And I guarantee you it's that love with truth that'll win their heart to our Lord. Guys, at the end of the day, is homosexuality sin? Yeah, it is. Is abortion wrong? Yeah, it's a painful mistake. Modesty, the way we carry ourselves in dress, does God have something to say about that? Yeah, he sure does. And while those things are true because of what the scriptures say, you and I will never be guilty of campaigning against homosexuality. You and I will never be guilty of picketing abortion clinics. You and I will never be guilty of being the the clothing police. We won't. We won't. Because we will allow the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit. It's God's job to convict. It's God's act of His Spirit through His Word. It's our job to speak the truth in love. As rubbing someone's nose in their sin never turned their heart to Jesus. It just doesn't. Loving people really well, in spite of their brokenness, that could draw them to repentance. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And let me just say out loud and just ask you to forgive me for moments as a young Christian where I can remember having arguments with my friends who didn't know you trying to argue them into heaven, trying to convince them instead of just loving them and living my life in front of them and sharing your truth and love in a conversation and in a relationship. God, I I had to turn it into a me against them thing and God, forgive me for that. God, forgive us as a church for not handling these hot topics really well. God, that anybody who's far from you would ever think that we don't like them, God, that's just sin. That's just wrong. And God, we confess that, we admit that, and we own that. And God, we commit to being a different kind of people. The kind of people where anybody can walk in here and hear an absolutely dangerous message, the truth of your word and your gospel, and yet be radically loved by your people at the same time. God, we want to be that kind of people. God, would you form that in us? And it's in Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen.